I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And also known as the person who consistently tries to start an NCAA March Madness women's bracket, but never gets anybody to go along with it. Oh, true. Sad <laughs> and true. I've been trying to do that basically since high school, but people never feel like they know enough about the women's side yeah, of the like, tournament like to the bet. People, like the people fig- filling out brackets know anything about the men's side either. Just yeah, saying. I mean, yeah, exactly. What's holding them back? So and, you know, I'm I'm a women's basketball fan and I live in Minneapolis where we love the links. Uh, everyone here is huge fans. Were you a basketball player? I uh, I was briefly a basketball player and then had a really mean coach in the sixth grade and quit basketball and and also ended up quitting soccer and stuck with tennis and returned to soccer later. But I stayed sort of throughout like a huge basketball reader. And I had this eternally checked out double biography of Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that I read on the sidelines of the tennis court, actually, about 400 oh, wow. times. And yeah. So I like went and looked it up, actually, because I was curious for this episode. I think it was Jerry Bronfield's Lakers book, which is like a double double biography and came out in 81. Did you did you play basketball at all? Yeah, I totally did. My basically my my whole life up through high school, um, and then I didn't play. I really stopped playing after that. I, I played soccer in college, and that was the end of my basketball career. We're going to talk about some more basketball and sports generally today. On the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Shira Springer of WBUR, which is Boston's NPR affiliate. Uh, she's a longtime sports writer, but first, we're excited to welcome our friend, novelist Marcus Burke. Marcus played varsity college basketball at Susquehanna University for four years before earning his MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. He's the author of the novel Team 7, which earned a starred review from Kirkus and was long listed for the 2015 Penn Open Book Award and was one of the 10 titles to pick up now in O, the Oprah magazine. Marcus is now 
on the creative writing faculty at the Mountain View MFA program, but he's about to join the faculty at Texas Tech. Marcus, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to talk with you guys. Yeah, we're 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 thrilled to have you here. And and Wit and I are both basketball fans, and March Madness is upon us, and it's you know it's the happiest time of the year, right? Um, with your basketball, I mean. I, I mean, I guess it. I guess it depends on your team. But with your basketball background, are you a big fan of any specific teams, or any? Are there any teams that you follow closely throughout the season? Um, I can't lie. If you've seen Duke this year, they've got I... they've got Zion Williamson. He is a uh, he. He is. I don't know. He's in a league of his own athletically. I mean, he's his athleticism is. Uh, I don't know. The only thing to compare him to is LeBron, really. Has he been playing in the tournament in the conference tournament? Because I know he hasn't. He, he stayed out after he blew his shoe out in that in the game against North Carolina. And then I heard yeah. that he was going to come back for the for the conference tournament. Has that happened? Do you know? Yeah, he he played last night. Ah. And he had he he went thirteen for thirteen from the field. He he's not oh. better. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Well, I'm a KU fan, so we're not allowed to like Duke around here. Um, I mean. Good Lord, does anyone, no one likes Duke. I was, um, gosh, what was I, I was on a flight recently and I pulled, um, someone had left a bunch of, of magazines in the pocket in front of me. And then I, I'm a longtime Michigan fan. I taught at Michigan for five years, but I, I actually grew up as a, as a, you know, I sort of learned to watch college, college basketball by watching the Fab Five. And um, oh. I know. Oh. UConn and and I also um, spent part of my childhood in Connecticut and so was sort of part of watching that watching those basketball teams and and sort of part of that fandom as well at one point and but I still you know I can't look away from Zion Williamson my god just amazing and so this I pulled this this magazine out of the back and sort of realized I had stumbled upon a, an article of, that was Duke fandom and it was bias a writer who had graduated from Duke and I was like oh god what's happened to me what's happened to me <laughs> yeah he's unreal <laughs> do you have any family members who you uh, uh, talk uh, basketball with or friends who you're on the opposite sides of the aisle with Marcus um not really my family is West Indian so growing up they were more into soccer yeah, um, that's what I played in in college. And most of my friends, um, no, not really. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I had a teammate in college. He was from Harrisburg. We always used to kind of have our city wars, but that wasn't really college. <laughs> so if your family was into soccer, how did you become a basketball player? Honest to goodness, um, I remember it was the NBA Finals the year that Shaquille O'Neal was on the Orlando Magic and he was playing the Houston Rockets in mm-hmm. the finals. I remember that year. I'm not sure how old I was. It might have been like second or third grade maybe. And I remember just watching that finals and I don't know, just sitting there like, I want to do that. That looks really <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I was a big roller skater when I was younger. And so I remember going to the basketball court with my roller skates on. And uh, that didn't work out, and so I took the skates off. But the ball, the ball took. <coughs> wow. So you played four years, as we mentioned, at Susquehanna, and then went to Iowa. And we wanted to know what the interplay, if anything, was for you between writing and basketball. Are there any skills or ideas that you developed in basketball that transferred to writing or vice versa? Yes. Um, well, I feel like because I 
pretty much like retired from basketball. Like, I mean, I played senior night and then if I was going to play anymore, I would have had to go overseas, but I got into graduate school. So I feel like I often, when I'm not sure what I'm feeling as a writer, I think about when I felt that way as a basketball player and what was going on and why. And so I often think some of the skills that translate are more like your mindset in terms of like training because because I was a hardcore athlete growing up, I wasn't really a big reader. And I just and it wasn't because I didn't necessarily like to read, it's just that I had such a Eurocentric education that very rarely did I find anything that interests me. And mm. so I often would just not because I just didn't want to. Right. <laughs> and then it's not until I began being a writing major and I had a professor that actually, he went to the writer's workshop too. He was my first writing teacher and he was the guy that would work out. He wasn't an athlete per se, but like he would lift weights and stuff a lot. I'd see him in the gym and he would always go back and forth with me about the reading thing. And I would just be like, guy, like, you know, I was a hip hop fan, you know, hip hop can kind of, you know, those rappers would be like, I don't listen to anybody. I listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was kind of like, you know, pig-headed in that way. And then there was just one day that he was like, you know, it's just like lifting weights. Like, if you don't work on your jump shots, you won't get better. If you don't read, you're not going to get better. You know, and I was like, oh, I get it. Like, I was like, oh, so I just have to train. And essentially, you know, growing your muscles, you just need to, like, grow your brain, you know? So I, um, I think my work ethic has come from my approach to basketball, which is just, you have to work every day um, just to get yourself a chance at success. But nothing's really guaranteed. So I'd say my approach to writing is very uh, influenced or informed by the way that I approached basketball. I always felt um, I, I played two years of soccer um, in college. I wasn't, it, you know, it was a D1 team, it was a good team. Uh, I didn't play much, which is why I only played two years and then I quit to, to write. Um, but it was painful stopping. It's interesting to me that you didn't play again because I didn't play soccer again for like maybe 15 years. Um, did you, do you still, are you still off the court or do you, have you go back after a little while? Um, I will shoot around sometimes. Like I've, I've been, I will run open gyms sometimes. I usually am at the court shooting around by myself, and I usually get pressured into playing because there's a court that has nine guys, and they need one more to play, and I'm, like, messing up everybody's flow if I won't just run. So usually, <laughs> so usually I'll just play. But um, honestly, it's funny. I feel more that way a bit about, like, the weight room, where I was done playing, and I was just like, you guys can't make me lift weights anymore. <laughs> I hate lifting weights. Uh, I, but I do play. Like, I was shooting around yesterday. Um, it, it actually it helps me clear my – it helps me think, honestly, because shooting is such a mind-numbing thing to me. Like, I, it's just I've been doing it for so long that I don't really think about it. And so I often think about my writing while I'm shooting around. Oh, that's cool. So it's sort of meditative, it sounds like. Very much so, because I feel like the other day I was having a really good thinking day, and I kind of looked up and was like, man, I haven't made a shot in a while. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I got some really good thinking done, so it was all productive. (laughs) It's so funny. There's not a similar thing like that in soccer shooting. Because when I scrimmage, I find it mentally exhausting because there's a lot of thought. 
about where players are moving and how you're where you need to be and I don't do any thinking at all when I'm scrimmaging it's good for turning off my mind like if I'm playing but there's no like shooting baskets in soccer oddly it's boring to just sit there and kick at a goal yeah I think that's what drew me to it it's just the sim the simplicity of it which is just that you know you can play a whole game but you can also be by yourself and still get a whole workout in I think that's probably what drew me to it that sounds like writing yeah. So, Marcus, you know, in your your excellent novel, Team Seven, which we which we love reading, um, basketball is also important to the main character, Andre. And it would be great if you would read a little bit of Team Seven for us. Sure. Um, so, Team Seven, the main character's name is Andre, and he is a young man growing up on the edge of Boston, a town called Milton, Massachusetts, and. He's a basketball player, and his family's he's first-generation American. His father is a reggae musician, and he is an athlete, though a lot of the sports are off-camera. Um, so here, I'll read from a section called Chocolate Chip. Me and Beezy had just come from chilling at Kelly Park. He was hungry, and I needed some zigzags. Beezy grabbed the door handle and froze. Fuck. His hand, his arms tantrumed out to his sides as he limboed back toward me, bouncing at the knees. Go, nigga, I nudged him in the back. Look inside, he elbowed me in the chest, all we need on a Sunday. I got a nauseous tingle in my stomach. Sade Fulton was there with her pops. He's my regional all-star team coach, forever rocking them black undertaker shades and cussing somebody out on his cell phone. The type of cat that turned a phone call about practice into a into a 45 minute hot seat roast session wanting to know my dreams where i saw myself in the next 10 years my plan to combat the white man's glass ceiling system he drove a sexy chromed out black on black 745 beamer a nice sound system but he didn't play music in his car when he rode with us to our, when we when i rode with him to our games he told me what he had to say was more important than anything the crackerjacked radio box could tell us knuckleheaded kids. He drove us every day after he drove by us every day after school, never stopping to politic. He'd just thump on by, slow freezing every nigga in their pose. Rumor is he used to be a dope boy, but I don't know. Shit. My plan was to stoner glide the Sunday breeze. All I did know was he'd spoiled Sade into a rotten into a rotten bitch. He was standing at the counter filling out a money order slip. The mean mug on Sade's face stanker than a bowl of chitlins. Mr. Fulton had on a black Adidas jogging suit with a Sunday Boston Globe tucked under his arm. Sade was behind him holding up a lip gloss. Mr. Fulton answered his cell phone and we seized the moment and broke. Sade acted like she ain't see us hiding in the back near the water cooler and fresh fruit. She stood there stone-faced, sucking on the lip gloss that she hadn't purchased yet, slow and steady like it was a popsicle or a cigarette or something else. <laughs> Gawking and thinking about her lips, she glanced over. We met eyes. Mm. She folded her arms and rolled her eyes, craning her body away from my direction. She's too much. The baddest dark-skinned girl in school, but a crazy bird brain, too. A bad bitch that knows she's a bad bitch, the worst and most dangerous kind. 
She always had the freshest Jordans on, wrist dripping with gold bamboo bangles, air swinging low with door knockers. She's been crumbs in my bed ever since we went out for three weeks last school year. We never broke up, but we fizzled out. She's been evil glaring me ever since. She likes to start shit for the sake of starting shit. Mr. Fulton got off the phone and glanced around the store. I hunched into myself and acted like I was trying to read the back of a box of Theraflu. He paid and walked out the door. Sade moved up in line to pay. She looked through Tanetta, gave her one of them blank stares the way people do at ATMs. She dropped her lip glass on her lip gloss on the counter like she was rolling a hand of dice. Thank you so much, Marcus. God, we're great characters. <laughs> Thank you. Um so a lot of the basketball that Andre plays takes place off screen in the novel and what we see is mostly his life in the neighborhood, like that scene. And but I, I'm really interested in the figure of Mr. Fulton. Who seems like he's similar, I mean, in some ways to the kind of AAU coaches we hear about in the news. And, and usually we hear about that. Yeah, in the context of those coaches who maybe with the help of an Adidas sales rep are doing something that the NCAA would disapprove of. And, and here, Andre sees Fulton as a straight arrow, like kind of a, a law and order guy. And, and I'm wondering if you had a coach like that. Oh, God, yes. I had many coaches like that. I, mean, <laughs> I had many coaches like that. Well, I mean, I'd say the biggest one that I had, I mean, I don't know. It's questionable about, like, his character, if he's a decent individual in life. But, like, he he told me straight one time. He was he was my – he. I, I won't name him. Um, he – told me straight this was a coach that i had that was running an aau program he was probably making over 100k a year doing it oh man that's a good deal take that i mean he was i mean he's probably made himself a millionaire by now um and he said to me one time that he was the biggest con artist in the city of boston and i was like oh my gosh and this was in reference to me telling him that I was mistreated in an ambulance after I'd gotten injured. And he yelled at me and said, well, why didn't you call me? And I was like, because I called my mom. And he was like, I'm the biggest con artist in the city of Boston. You always call me. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Wait, okay. so you were in an ambulance because you got hurt playing ball or got hurt doing something else? No, I got hurt playing ball. Okay. And, uh, yeah, you know, that chapter's in the new book. <laughs> um I, I got injured playing basketball, and I encountered some really, I mean, I'm pretty sure they were racist EMTs, and they really didn't want me in their ambulance, and so it was the middle of the winter, because, you know, basketball was probably around this time of year, it was late February, and I'd gotten injured, I had a high tertiary sprain in my ankle, and I couldn't walk, and they were taking me out of the gym on the gurney, in my uniform so i'm hot i'm sweaty it's the middle of winter and i'm like um excuse me uh i need like a blanket my coat like uh <laughs> it's cold outside and i was on the phone with my mother because they didn't let me get my things and so i called my mother and i said like ma they won't let me get my stuff and so the lady was like uh-uh give me that phone she took the phone from me and I don't know what took place between her and my mother, but all I know is she just said, this is an ambulance, we're not a homekeeping service, and hung up on my mother. Oh, my God. And, and so when that happened, I 
said, like, you know, y'all can just let me out of this ambulance. Like, this is not going well. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's when the second I said that, she said, like, I don't know, she said, like, code red into her little microphone Uh thingy. And then they stopped the ambulance. They opened the doors. And we sat there and waited for the police to come. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Marcus, how old were you? I was probably 16. Oh. I was 16. And um, it was kind of, it was amazing because, I don't know, I feel like you start to learn about racism in the world where it was interesting because I I was at a really fancy private school. And so... You know, if it had been a year before when I was in public school, I don't know what would have happened to me. But the reason that things kind of worked out is because one of my affluent teammates' mothers, who was a lawyer, was following the ambulance, and she uh, she got that lady fired, I believe. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh my God, Boston. Oh, Boston. <laughs> well, I mean, while we're here, we wanted to ask you what you were working on. I guess, did you say you were writing about this? I mean, th- that's the sort of rumors we're hearing is that uh, you know, there's going to be a sort of follow-up to Team 7 uh, and that, that there was a chapter from the new novel in McSweeney's in, in, in uh, last spring, right? Yes. Um, I published a chapter from the novel in McSweeney's last spring and I am working on a follow-up. I'm actually working on, I guess I'll just say it, it's a trilogy of books. Um, Though the concern is kind of varied where it's kind of funny because people say that Team 7 is a basketball book. And Sugi had mentioned, you know, most of the basketball happens off camera. And that's just because I feel like in the first book, the phases of basketball that he was in were not as interesting as the ones that he goes into. Mm-hmm. And so in the first book, you don't really see that much basketball. But in the next one, you'll see a lot of basketball where <laughs> he spends a lot more time just at the gym. And you get more of the AAU stuff just because that's like another world. I mean, I think if people aren't familiar with it, um, they'll be blown away with just... You know, like I played for an AAU team in high school, but I mean, we were traveling around the country, and I don't know who was paying for all that stuff. We're talking about and getting at, you know, wealth and and money and race. And speaking of all this stuff, have you been following the FBI investigation into the payments made by shoe companies to college basketball players? Because, you know, um, the LSU coach Will Wade, after Yahoo News reported that he'd been caught in a wiretap saying that he made a strong ass offer to recruit a player, um, you know, he was suspended. So are you what are your thoughts about, you know, money and amateurism and, and college sports? Honestly, I think it's ridiculous. Um, I, I guess I'll say I think it's ridiculous in the way that I think it is. 
I don't know what word to use to describe my thoughts on the way that the NCAA, I mean, to me, it's like akin to slave labor. Like, I mean, the NCAA makes millions and millions and millions of dollars off of athletes. And the best thing that people want to say is, well, they're getting an education. I mean, are they? And I was going to say, like, (laughs) a lot of times, like, I, I don't know, I feel like a lot of times when people say that, I'm like, you didn't play college sports because I'm just like, I remember my freshman year we were playing in. So when I was in college, we switched conferences because of academics. So my first year we would have games anytime, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, it didn't matter. And so there were times that you get back to campus at like one or two in the morning, you got an 8 a.m. class, you got to do homework. Like, no, like, I I don't know. I feel like, (laughs) I don't know. I just look at it like, why is it okay for kids that want to be musicians, kids that want to be actors? They, you know, like, there's kids that are little movie stars. They don't have any college trouble with amateurism and stuff. I mean, I, I guarantee if a kid that was a movie star wanted to go to college and join the theater program and help out, there wouldn't be an issue with that. I know. And I was so, thinking about, like, a student in my creative writing course. If they, like, sold a book, I wouldn't be like, well, I'm sorry. You're going to yeah, have to, you're not going to be able to take right. that money. We're going to take it for us. But you can right. sell it later after you graduate. Maybe you'll sell another one. Yeah, I don't know. I think to me it's, I don't know. I, I wonder why people are so against it. You know, like well, why they're against it. And I think that the reason is, and I remember feeling this when I was a college athlete, where there was one day there was some fraternity boys in the in the weight room with us. And I feel like their hatred for us was almost like palpable. Like you can like almost feel it where I was. And so I sat there and I looked at them and I thought like, why do they hate us so much? <laughs> like I was like, what did we do to these guys? And then I was like, and then I thought about it and I was like, well, these are the same guys that come to our games and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, it's like jealousy. And then I was like, oh, I'm playing D3 sports. You know, like these guys are division one athletes. Like those are coveted spots. And so I think that it's really easy to, like, pull a red herring or a false correlation where you try to say, like, oh, it's bad for the sport that we pay these guys because look at their lifestyles and stuff like that. But, I mean, I've still yet to hear a valid argument as to why it's a bad thing to to pay players, especially because there's players that are going to get out of college too injured to continue. And, I mean, I think also it's impossible to not look at Right. I think particularly in in college basketball um, and in college athletics and in sort of the premier sports in general, like the the way the prevalence of, of black athletes and to think about how race plays into that, because, you know, I'm thinking about um, mm-hmm. we didn't we did an episode on mass incarceration and, and Zach Lazar was describing um, Angola to us and describing prison labor. And it's just hard to not put all of this into the context of the racial politics of this country and right. to be someone who who loves sports people people talk about this like loving sports and thinking that athletes should be paid or are in opposition and i think actually like you know if you love sports why would you not want athletes to be treated well you know to be right. someone who loves teaching and you know who's taught college athletes and to want them to want the best for them like why would you not want them to be supported if this if the players went away there would be no system and I think that it's also predatory because they're often going into economically disadvantaged areas to get these players. 
you know, like, I mean, I, I don't know. I was around, uh, I hung around the division one program for a while as a part of my recruiting and I saw a lot of illegal stuff going. So I'll say about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that stuff that you, when you, we talk about the Will Wade stuff, like you're like, that's not surprising. Oh no, not at all. Like, I mean, it's because to, to me, it really starts with AAU. I played for a team that was sponsored by Nike mm-hmm. when I was an AAU player. Now, usually the school that you choose needs to align with your program. So that's where him saying that, like, he was trying to get some kid to come to an Adidas school. He probably played for a Nike AAU team. And that's oh, why he's probably I on see. Um, and so, I mean, you're, de- you're depicting this, this world in fiction in, in what you're working on now. And you were saying that in your upcoming book, there's a lot of basketball. And, you know, I grew up reading the Washington Post sports section, which was one of the country's great newspaper sports sections, and just loving reading about basketball in particular. And I'm curious, you know, obviously you're following the news. Who are the sports writers whom you love or are there great depictions of basketball and fiction that you can you can point us to actually, i really liked grantland actually while well, grantland was around they were my favorite yeah um our, I was our, that's a good them. that was a good website i still listen to bill simmons podcast he's pretty good on he's funny about the nba he knows a lot about the nba although he likes all boston teams so i don't know maybe you'd like that marcus um <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i never have issues with the things that he says you know honestly i really like um i really like listening to Jalen rose talk about sports <laughs> oh yeah he's good yeah, he and Simmons used to have a show together, didn't they? Right, um, and I, honestly, it was great. They used to do a show called Story Time with Jalen, and he <laughs> yeah. would tell all of the like off the court stories. And sometimes, as interesting and glitzy as the game is, the stuff that happens outside of the game is way more interesting. Like the stuff that goes on in the hotels, like all the nonsense that happens that you're not actually able to tell the coach about. Oh. It's lovely. I, <laughs> lovely. Look, we all uh, studied, and I think we might all know each other because of the fact that we studied with Jim McPherson, James McPherson at Iowa, and he comes up on the show a lot. And I was thinking about if I'd ever talked to him about sports, and I don't think I ever did. Um, but he does have this essay in his essay collection, A Region Not Home, called Grant Hall that's kind of like an anti-athletics essay. Are you guys familiar with that piece? Yeah, uh, I am familiar with that piece. It's funny. I did study with Jim as well, and I don't recall ever really talking about sports with him. I was only a year removed from being a college athlete myself, and so it was something that I didn't really want to talk about because I think I was still working that out of my system, trying to become a little more human. He talks about the way the athletes that he runs into at Grant Hall in particular are sort of like... They're like um, they're like Spartans, you know, and, and and they're in that way that they're also like hedgehogs. They know one thing that they know how to do really well. And he talks about wanting to become an Athenian who can, you know, skip around and improvise and, and doesn't have to be aligned with one particular group. Um, and that was one of the things that for me was, you know, the team concept of being part of the team is so intense when you're mm-hmm. playing athletics. But also it is limiting. Like it, it was something my teammates did not like it that I read and like took creative writing classes and gave me shit about it all the time. You know, yeah. I don't know. Was that true for you? Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, I feel like they didn't, 
I mean, they gave me shit about it sometimes, but honestly, it was more tongue-in-cheek because I think they all really thought that I was, like, pulling their leg. You know, like, where, <laughs> you know, because they'd all be like, you know, they all had a joke where they'd be like, oh, yeah, you're writing a book. Like, put me in your book, man. And I'd be like, you don't, you don't really mean that because I'd have to, like, look at your life. And, you know, I'm your teammate. I know your life. You know, kind of like, you don't want that. Um, <laughs> I remember one time we were on a road trip and, uh, one of my a book came out that I wanted, and this is back when Borders was still around, and we were at the pregame meal, and I asked my coach if I could go to Borders and buy a book, and he looked at me like I was sick. He was like, you know, if you want to call your girlfriend, just say so. And I was like, no, <laughs> coach. So, like, I was like, no, really, I just want to go buy a book. And then when I came back with it, you know, everybody looked at me like I was a Martian. They were like, wow, like, you're really going to read this book with all these words? And I was like, I am. <laughs> so, no, I think they were more confused by it a little bit but they were pretty supportive i would say like my teammates honestly i was sent to susquehanna by the coaching staff um or at least somebody on the coaching staff at a division one program they're not there anymore um and when i decided that i wanted to write he was really angry uh, the coach that i told you was making all the money he mm-hmm. was really bad um wow. Because we weren't happy at Susquehanna at all. Um, and he wanted us to leave. And he wanted me to come to Carnegie Mellon. And at the time, they didn't really have a creative writing program, I don't think. Or at least not that I could find. And then he either wanted me to go to Carnegie Mellon or to Robert Morris. And Robert Morris, uh, Mike Rice was coaching there and Mike Rice had been abusing players and like I'd already worked out with him before and I was like, oh, there's no way in this world I'm going to get mixed up with that crap. And then he freaked out on me in such a real way. Like he said to me that he pulled up the statistics of people that make money graduating from college and people that do writing are at the very bottom. He told me that I was going to be suicidal and alcoholic. Well, I mean, those things are true, but what an asshole for bringing it up, for crying out loud. (laughs) And so, um, you know, every time I get writing news, I think he always gets a little nervous. Um, So, Marcus, it it would be, I think, wrong to let you go without asking you who you have picked as your final four in your bracket. Um, well... I won't tell a lie. I have not looked at a bracket quite yet, but I will give you guys a final four. All right, okay. let's have it. I will say, you know, I don't know if like this. I mean, we can't really pick. Yeah, out. we don't. There's no bracket. We we can't really okay, choose I was a bracket. Say, right, there's I, no bracket. This is Whitney stepping in to say that we recorded with Marcus and Shira on the Friday and Saturday before brackets were released, so we have not seen the brackets at this time. Say, um, Duke, Gonzaga, UNC, Tennessee. Oh, Tennessee. That'll be nice. The yeah. coach at Tennessee left uh Texas, one of my one of you know, I'm a I'm in a Big Twelve town and so that'll that'll really make everybody in Texas happy if he makes the final four. Oh Rick well, Barnes. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to say Texas Tech, yeah. <laughs> well, Texas Tech Texas Tech, Texas Tech, Texas Tech oh yeah, yeah. Wait, how come they're not in the final four, Marcus? They got a good team well, this year. I was going to say, honestly, ever since I took the job, I started watching. And I was like, oh, boy, they are actually pretty good. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, I'll swap uh, UNC for Texas Tech. There you about go. That. Go Big 12. <laughs> and uh, when this episode drops, it will be Thursday. So, actually, the tournament will be kicking off. 
Marcus, thanks so much for uh, joining us. We're looking forward to the new book, and we encourage everyone who hasn't already to go out and buy Team 7. Thanks for having me, guys. This episode of Fiction Nonfiction is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. And we're just going to tell you a little bit about our experiences with it. We're always trying to be smarter versions of ourselves. Um, And listening and watching The Great Courses Plus has been a great avenue to do that. It's a wealth of information available. It's a streaming service and features some of the best college professors across a huge variety of areas of interest. And there is a a nice advantage, the no no pressure of homework or exams, which I personally (laughs) enjoy. You know, I was a good student once, but no more um, tests, man. No more, no more Scantron forms for me. So you can enjoy lectures on topics like Russian literature, Watergate, paleontology, Tai Chi, and just that's just naming a few. I mean, it's really, um, it's a pretty impressive library of information, and there's always something new to explore, which makes it makes it a lot of fun. And we have an offer that's especially for FNF listeners. Oh yeah, okay. We're we're going to give you a better deal this this uh, even better than what we've been given, which has been a going to be a free trial plus if you sign up for it, you can lock in a ten dollar per month um uh, charge for signing up for a three-month plan of using the great courses plus that's a 50 percent off the regular price i have been listening to sci-fi science fiction is philosophy this week which is totally awesome and the reason is that this, this is a really great phil- uh, philosophy professor who, who's giving the lectures but he's using movies that all of you will have seen. So he's talking about like The Matrix and The Matrix Reloaded. He's actually making you think The Matrix Reloaded is better than it probably is. But he's talking about like Calvinism and free will. He talks about Inception, the movie Inception and the interpretation of art. He talks about the Adjustment Bureau and fate. And these are like, it's incredibly smart idea of like cross crossing science fiction and the way that science fiction delves into like profound and interesting uh, philosophical concepts. So he's talking about The Matrix, but he's also talking about Baudrillard are, you know, uh, so it's just fascinating stuff. And when I've looked at the lectures, I think one of the things that impresses me is how inclusive the syllabi seem. Um, that's really something that I look for as a teacher and that I appreciate. And I also appreciate it as a student, um, a non-Scantron taking student. But <laughs> so um, we know you're going to love the Great Courses Plus too. And so we have a limited special offer for our listeners, that free trial that Whit mentioned. Um, and you can lock in the lowest price of 10 bucks a month when you sign up for a three-month plan. And that's 50% off the regular price. And it's a great deal and you can get it by going to our special url which is the greatcoursesplus.com slash lit hub and again that's a free trial plus 50 percent off your monthly plan at the greatcoursesplus.com slash lit hub and now we're thrilled to welcome shira springer of boston's npr news station wbur at wbur shira covers stories at the intersection of sports and society You can hear her radio features on NPR and WBUR, and she was a staff writer at the Boston Globe for almost 20 years, and while she was there, reported on all four major Boston professional teams, the NBA Finals, the World Series, the Olympics, and the Boston Marathon. She was the Celtics beat writer for seven years and also an Olympic columnist and women's sports columnist, and she continues to write columns on women's sports for the Globe and Sports Business Journal. She's the winner of national awards for investigative sports journalism and feature writing, and she ran college track and cross country. Shira, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. 
It's great to have you here. Earlier this year, you published a couple of articles about coverage of women's sports and highlighted basketball, in particular through a conversation with Sue Bird of the Seattle Storm. Uh, you picked out Sugi's favorite WNBA team, the Minnesota Lynx, which have the coolest name of any professional sports team, in my personal opinion, and the Minneapolis Star <laughs> Tribune as an example of women's, of women's teams getting good coverage. What are they doing right? Uh, I think it starts with consistency. You know when the, the Star Tribune is going to cover the Lynx. You know you can expect it there on a regular basis. So I think it all starts with consistency. Um, they have committed to coverage. Uh, they are doing games. They are doing features. They are doing analysis. They send columnists to games. Um, all of that is important. And also they give it a prominence in the newspaper. You'll see it on the front page of the sports section. You'll see it in the Star Tribune's magazine. Um, and they do big profiles. They, and I think another factor is they also treat it like they would treat any of the men's professional teams. And that sometimes means being critical. So some of their analysis, some of the reporters' analysis of the team is critical. It's critical of the players. It's critical of the coaches. So all of that combined um, – yeah. really makes that good coverage. The, you know, I mean, I, I, I love the piece that you wrote for uh, Neiman Reports about this, you know, ways to improve coverage of women's sports. And what it, I mean, sports coverage to me and the way it relates to writing and literature is that it, what's most important about it is narrative and it's generational narrative, right? So when you talk about that consistency of coverage, it's that the narrative has to be consistent. You have to know like why, how, why it matters, how the links are doing this year as opposed to two years ago and how this player you know, has overcome this problem that they had uh, you know, four years ago. That, that's the kind of thing that I follow in sports, in men's sports. You know? Is that what you're talking about in that kind of consistency of coverage? Yeah, you bring up a really good point. And what's interesting about women's sports and sort of problematic is that it hasn't been around for that long. And you don't have that sort of institutional memory. Uh, so you don't have all this great history and this great wealth of narrative to draw from. Right. And it's so important that the writing we do now about women's sports establishes that narrative because there are great stories out there to tell. And that was really Sue Bird's point, which is like, tell our stories, dig into them, tell about, you know, give us a sort of make female athletes three dimensional, which is something that doesn't always happen. So I think you're absolutely right. There needs to be attention to the narrative of female athletes and also the narrative of their teams. You know, you're lucky there with the links in that they have uh, you know they have a storied history i mean they've been the most uh, they have i believe they've won the most wnba championships um in league history um mm -hmm. so they've been incredibly successful and there's a wealth of stuff a wealth of stories you can choose from um and i think the star tribune makes good use of that and makes good use of that history but not every city is lucky enough to have a team like that. Not every athlete is lucky enough to play on a team like that. Um, so it is, I feel, the responsibility of news athletes to really start um, telling these stories and telling them on a regular basis. So have you seen coverage of women's sports over the, over the period of time that you've been a journalist? How, is, how, how have you seen it change? Oh, not enough. You know, um, I, I wish it had changed more. I mean, in the story, I point out how uh, coverage of women's sports only accounts for 4% of total sports coverage um, in the U.S. And that's a really paltry number, given how many women are engaged in playing sports at all levels. Um, 
But I think what's interesting is, you know, since I've started covering sports, you've had the addition of ESPNW, which is this platform that's totally dedicated to women's sports, which is nice. Um, But I've personally been impressed with some of the smaller enterprises that are out there and doing coverage, whether whether they're feminist podcasts like the Burn It All Down podcast. Yeah, that was fun to read about. I didn't know about that podcast. Exactly. And it's a great listen. And it's really fun to just hear what they have to say and hear a group of women talking sports, not necessarily women's sports, but just talking sports and viewing it through a feminist lens, which is always really fun. Um, there's also, um, if, I don't know if you're familiar, a, a, a website called Equalizer Soccer. And that is, that's women's soccer. It's dedicated entirely to women's soccer. And I know exactly where I will be going um, for the in-depth Women's World Cup coverage that I want. I will be going there. Um, And there's other um, entities that I mentioned um, in the article, like Her Hoop Stats. Um, And I actually just met with the founder of Her Hoop Stats at at a sports analytics conference. And I mean, and he's doing vital work. You know, I I remember as, as a kid, I was a tennis player in addition to a basketball watcher and also a tennis watcher. And I remember um, all of these things about women's bodies and women's clothes and like the way that, I mean, when, when a woman's body becomes the object of viewing, how does that affect the writing and who's doing the writing? Well, first of all, not enough women. I think uh, the percentage is somewhere around 10%, you know, of women are in the, you know, of our women are, are editors. Um, and that's where the real problem, I think, exists, because if you have men doing the primary decision making about how sports gets covered and who gets covered, then it often means that women's sports don't get covered as much as they should. It also impacts you talk about image. It also impacts um, photo selection, you know, the photos that go with the articles. Um, but as far as like, you know, how how the type of or the gender of the writer affects the um, coverage. I think it's just a, it's a question of, I look at a female athlete when she's competing much different than a male colleague does. And, and, you know, I may have some male colleagues that object to that. um, But I'm sorry, it's true. I would bet that I am much more focused on how she's competing, the, the, her athleticism, her skill level, her talent level, um, and not so much focused on how she looks or what she's wearing. I mean, I just cringe now, and I still can't believe it's done when I read a lead um, about a critical match, whether it's a tennis match or even a critical basketball game, or you know, it's a, a track race, um, you know, or a marathon. And you know, somewhere in the lead, there is a sentence or even a half a sentence. Um, that focuses on how a female runner looks and, you know, connects her look to her accomplishments. I was asking that question, I think, thinking specifically about Claudia Rankin's Citizen, which includes material on Serena Williams. And what a pleasure and also revelation it was to look at Serena Williams through Claudia Rankin's eyes. And I was thinking about, you know, as a kid, I read a ton of sports fiction and I was always looking really specifically for feminist sports fiction and still have some of those books that I read when I was a kid. You know, the girl who joins the boys' baseball team. And I remember there was a series for kids. Um, in Does which the Bad book- News Bears then count? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> No, definitely not. Probably but not. Then they had they had a really good female p- pitcher though, wasn't she? Like yeah. their savior. That was that was the whole idea. Yeah, I think, 
I think I was the kind of kid who was perhaps not allowed to watch the bad news. Oh, okay. Bears. Well, we just watched <laughs> it over at our house last night. My kids learned a lot of new words. It was very fun. <laughs> That's why I wasn't allowed. <laughs> um, but there was a sports writer, John. On Tunis, who wrote a series of books in which each each book focused on a different sport. And then the tennis book focused on women. And I'm going to go ahead and spoil the end of the book here. At the end of the book, the woman tennis player gives up in the final of, I think, Wimbledon because she wants to get married. And I remember I basically, I mean, I've never felt so much like just hurling a book across the room, which I would never do, but also just was, was just so ticked off about it. Would you mind if I just like wander a little bit from my earphones because you were talking about fiction and I, my mom was cleaning out her attic um, and she found a book that she bought me and it was about a woman running um, the Boston Marathon and I can see it on my bookshelf. I'm just going to grab it. Yeah, okay. good. Let's go ahead. Okay. okay. I've got it. And it is a love story, I think. So Thank I'm going to just, des- I'm just going to describe it. I'm just going to describe it. She must've, she said she must've found it in some old discarded bin. Cause it's quite old. Um, it's called the, the title is the girl who wanted to run the Boston marathon because at the time I was young, but I had always had a fascination with running the Boston marathon. This is a novel by Robert McKay. And, um, this is, this is the description on the back cover. You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Chris was literally knocked off her feet the first time she met Skip. She'd been running laps around the reservoir, preparing herself for the Boston Marathon when they collided. At first, she, she thought he was quite ordinary. Then she realized he was special. Not only good-looking, but ironically, a world-class runner. Fate united these star-crossed lovers and then conspired to separate them before they had even begun to enjoy their love. So <laughs> it's supposed to be God. A, a story about a woman who wants to run the Boston Marathon. And now I have to admit, I, I may have read it a long time ago. I don't remember. It's, it's you know, it's a 190-page paperback. I should probably read it. But it certainly seems like this book about that you would think of from the title, like, oh, all right, female athletes, go, is really about this woman falling in love. I loved reading these books by R.R. Nudson, where this this girl named Suzanne, nicknamed Zan, plays a different sport in every book. And she runs the 1984 L.A. Marathon in one of those in one of those books. And she wins. Um and she never falls in love anywhere in any of the books. I loved these books so much. This girl was such a good all-around athlete that in every book she would play a different sport. And there was one in which she played basketball. And it was probably the first novel I read in which a woman played basketball. And I I tore through that whole series really, really fast and, and loved it. I remember the, the ending moments of um, that marathon book. If she makes friends with a Chinese runner and they run together at the end of at the end of the marathon. And I must have read that book in 1988. Um, so it really made an impact on me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate. You know, you'd hope that there would be more books like that and fewer like the girl who wanted to run the Boston Marathon. <laughs> right. Or the girl who goes up in the Wimbledon final to go get married. He yeah. Can't just, he can't just wait until after the final. I mean, yeah. What? Well, speaking of books and writing. And uh, you wrote a terrific essay for an anthology about sports uh, what ifs and your sports what if was about the 1936 Olympics. It's got some great hypotheticals and political analysis in it. We wanted to know if you'd read a little piece for us. 
This is from the book, um, Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History, and it's a book edited by Mike Pesca. So we'll pick up here the, the sort of the day after um, or the morning after the U.S. has uh, voted essentially to boycott or the powers that be in the Olympic movement have uh, in the U.S. have voted to boycott. Headlines around the country and overseas spread the news. U.S. says nine to Nazis. AAU backs Olympic boycott. Mahoney calls on other nations to follow. President Roosevelt on way to Middle West, silent on sports leaders' decision. No Olympic glory for world record holder Buckeye Bullet Owens. The AAU vote shocked Olympic caliber athletes around the United States. While they heard the boycott talk led by Mahoney and countered by Brundage, many never imagined they would stay home. They were too good, too much of a main attraction, too integral to any sports competition organized for the world's best. And so the U.S. boycott struck a crippling blow to the Nazi games. But that was not how American athletes wanted to use their talents. Leading up to the vote, they spoke strongly against a boycott. Black sprinter Ben Johnson even confronted Mahoney during a Columbia University symposium telling the AAU president he should put his own house in order before criticizing others and citing discrimination against black athletes in the United States. Owens, Ben Johnson, Ralph Metcalf, Cornelius Johnson, and Euless Peacock, all African-American track stars, wrote to Brundage in favor of participating in Berlin. For Owens, it marked a reversal of earlier radio comments, but more accurately reflected his eagerness to compete on the world stage. Now, with the boycott news, U.S. athletes were reeling with disappointment, frustration, and anger. They saw a missed opportunity to show up Hitler, especially for African-American and Jewish team members. It was easy to envision African-American athletes, especially Owens, as counter-arguments to Hitler's Aryan ideal. Owens was barely six months removed from the greatest track and field performance ever. At the Big Ten Championship meet, in the span of 45 minutes, he broke world records in the 220-yard dash, 220-yard low hurdles, and long jump. And he tied the world mark in the 100-yard dash. And he had competed that day with a back so badly injured, he had almost withdrawn from the meet. Some might call that record-setting Big Ten performance miraculous. But Owens had nothing on Betty Robinson. After winning gold in the 100-meter dash at the 1928 Amsterdam Olympics, she came back from the dead. In June 1931, she was involved in a biplane crash and found unconscious and found unconscious beneath the wreckage. She was placed in the trunk of a car and driven to an undertaker, then was discovered to be alive. Robinson had a deep cut across her forehead, a left leg fractured in several places, and a broken left arm. No one thought she would race again. As the 1936 Berlin Olympics neared, she couldn't bend down into a proper starting crouch, but she would earn a spot on the 4x100 relay. Or she would have. More than 300 other American athletes would have joined Owens and Robinson in Berlin, all with compelling personal stories and impressive athletic resumes, and almost all would be lost to history because of the boycott. Great Britain and France quickly followed with Olympic boycotts of their own, adding to the number of athletes left with disappointment, frustration, and anger instead of medals. Both European countries had long worried about Hitler as Olympic host and long debated what to do. Like U.S. sports officials, members of the British Olympic Association 
and French leaders doubted Nazi assurances that Jewish athletes would be welcomed onto the German team. They also feared the reach of Hitler's propagandistic ambitions. The absence of Great Britain and France, two of the biggest teams after the German and U.S. delegations, would turn the Berlin Olympics into little more than a sports exhibition. That would tempt other countries to boycott, too. Um, Shira, thanks so much for that reading. It's interesting to think about the kinds of protest made possible by boycotts and the kinds of protests made possible by participating. Of course, I think of the NFL and Colin Kaepernick, but also the links and other teams that have participated in protests, for example, you know, wearing shirts to support Black Lives Matter. Some critics have noted that those protests preceded some that got more coverage done by male athletes. What do you think of how of social justice work done by male and female athletes and by black and white athletes has been covered in recent years? Yeah, I, first of all, I, I do think that that the protest work and the protest staged by female athletes certainly get a lot less attention unless they are about things like pay equity. I think um, that has become sort of... Um, for good reason, a very buzzy topic around sports. And we've seen that recently with the U.S. women's national soccer team um, filing. Yeah, exactly. Filing a lawsuit for um, pay equity and also for, you know, better support and better resources. Um, And, you know, we see that's always a constant topic um, within the WNBA and by WNBA players is, you know, getting better pay for the players. And, And we all know, a couple years ago when the U.S. women's national hockey team um, threatened to boycott uh, the world championships, which were going to be held um, and hosted um, in the United States. And they threatened to boycott it unless they got better pay um, and better support and better resources um, to develop their game, both at the elite level and at the youth level. Um, So I think it's interesting um, Unfortunately, some of the social protests that female athletes do um, get overshadowed by the social protests that male athletes do, particularly when it comes to NFL um, protests. But gradually, and maybe not even so gradually, I think there's been actually a pretty steep learning curve and a good learning curve for female athletes recognizing that if they time things right, you know, whether it's... um, before a major championship like the women's hockey team did or filing a lawsuit on International Women's Day that they can sort of generate um, a good deal of publicity and attention and prove to be very savvy uh, about how they proceed with a campaign for either you know, their own pay or perhaps other social issues. The, the one thing that I, that I was thinking of that was interesting to me about the protests that involved the women's uh, national soccer team um, is that in their case, you know, they have this argument that that in fact they are a more successful than the men's team, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they are also just they as are. popular, you know, if not more popular. And so, there, yeah, th- this has been traditionally the argument, like, okay, women's sports don't draw viewers, um, but that is not the case with women's soccer. And there are some other examples that I've seen you cite, you know, that the that like it, uh, the UConn women's games uh, at the University of Connecticut get higher ratings than the Red Sox. Um, and you also wrote a column about how uh, La Liga in Spain has sort of been pr- promoting women's soccer successfully. I wonder if you could talk about, about that a little bit. So a couple of things. Um, just, you know, with regard to the women's national soccer team, it, it always strikes me as like, you know, they're, they're campaigning for equal pay in my book. And I don't know how you guys feel about this. I think they should actually get paid more. They draw more attention to soccer in this country. More right. people yeah. follow them. They draw, you know, bigger crowds for all their games. Um, 
I mean, this is this. I would ask this question. I mean, to any average soccer fan in the U.S., can you name five players on the men's national soccer team? I bet you most people would draw a blank. And, I, and I'm talking soccer fans. And I, I bet if you ask that same question to people about the women's national team, can you name five players on the women's national soccer team? I bet you you would get people who could name, if not five, then three, you know, three or four. I mean, I think that people are just more aware and more, and quite frankly, more interested in the women's soccer team. Right. And they should be paid accordingly. And that means more than the men. Okay, that's my, my soapbox moment. Um, <laughs> so with regard to, you know, the question about, you know, yeah, UConn women's games, the men, women's basketball games get higher ratings, um, bigger audiences in Connecticut. No surprise to me as somebody who grew up in Connecticut 20 minutes away from stores. It is it is fascinating to, to live in that environment because women's sports are not, you know, not only do people pay attention to them, but people respect them. Um, you know, people talk in casual conversation, like, well, I'll be home for Thanksgiving and people will be talking about the women's basketball team at UConn. It is something that people are interested in. It's, it's part of that sports banter that you get a lot, um, you know, with men's professional sports well, or just men's sports it, in general. It's obvious to me that this can't, that peop, there is an audience for this because, and I judge it by basing on how I watch, uh, you know, parents, because I, I have two, I have two sons who are, who are nine and 13, but I go to a lot of sporting events in the, like, you know, between third grade and, and high school level. And like, you know, there'll be a, a women's volleyball tournament at the same place where my son's having a soccer game. And that place will be packed there will be parents ravenously watching all of those games, intensely interested in their daughters and their friends' daughters playing volleyball. So obviously, and it's not like they're not saying like, "Oh, we don't want to watch this," you know. Like, uh, it, so there has, there has to be a way for that interest that happens at the high school and like middle school level to carry through. Yeah, and I mean, I think it starts with something we were talking about earlier, which is consistency of coverage. Like, that's what you have in Connecticut, too. I mean, you have it in the Star Tribune with the links, but you also have it in the Hartford Current with the UConn women's basketball team. I mean, they are covered extensively. And so if you want to know about them, if you want to know the narrative of the season, you can easily find it um, in the Hartford Current. So I think that's a big deal. Um, Now, you were asking also about La Liga um, as well. And sort of what's, which is the the professional soccer league of Spain for those who don't follow that. Yes. Yes. And they have been very aggressively, um, promoting, as you mentioned, uh, women's club soccer in Spain. And part of that is because, um, I believe it's 12 teams, 12 men's teams also have a women's side. And I think kind of the lesson there um, that I took away after talking to the head of what they call the head of women's football, um, women's soccer, a guy by the name of Pedro Malavia um, in Spain and just talking to him. And what they one of the key things they did is because there's such fierce loyalty um, to Spanish club soccer. I mean, people live and die for FC Barcelona, you know, and the teams in Madrid and so on and so forth. They basically the teams in Bilbao. Uh, and, you know, they basically said, if you're a fan of FC Barcelona, you're a fan of FC Barcelona. And that means the the whole entire club and all that this club represents. And this club represents a women's side and a men's side. And then they did this really clever um, campaign called We Speak the Same Game. And it was clever in its simplicity in that it was just top players from you know, both the men's and women's teams of the, of the same club. So Barcelona, Bilbao, Valencia, et cetera. Um, 
And they had them just sitting side by side in the same uniforms, the uniforms they would wear during a game, talking soccer, talking about their passion for soccer. And it was that, you know, the optics were great. Um, And the conversation was great, too. But it was seeing them as equals um, and sending the message like, this is the same thing. They're talking about football is football, you know, in Spain. Soccer is soccer. And I think we don't get a lot of that in the United States. I think part of that is it's, you know, we have to work at it. It has to be marketed. It has to be pushed better. You know, the NBA can do a better job with the WNBA. MLS can do a better job. I mean, they don't, they don't have to, but, you know, they should want to do a better job with the NWSL, the Women's Pro Soccer League. The NHL can do a better job with the Women's Pro Hockey League. Um, by the way, uh, hat tip to Minneapolis again with the Whitecaps. Uh, the women's pro hockey team there, they're doing phenomenal. What's going uh, on up there, Sugi? How come all the good women's teams are in Minnesota? It's yeah, what, the water in the 10,000 leagues. What can I say? I was going to say, what is it? And, and they're getting attention and they're selling out. I think you know they're selling out at like record rates, their games and stuff like that. So it can be done. Um, but it requires effort and it requires consistency. And, you know, and until you have that, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's going to be difficult to make progress. Um, I also think, you know, one of the things I brought up in the article about women's sports coverage is it's going to take some reworking of the culture in sports departments because the culture as it currently exists um, prioritizes the coverage of men's pro teams. And I don't mean just in terms of what you see in the paper, but in terms of how you advance your career. So when I was coming up, the goal was to get on a men's pro sports beat. So I was always working toward covering the Celtics or the Red Sox or the Patriots. For me, it ended up being covering the Celtics for several years. Um, that mindset has to shift. You know, it, you know, you have to provide um, a, an, a path to career, you know, of a career advancement that goes, um, that leads to coverage of women's pro sports teams or women's teams. It has to be seen as a prestigious beat the same way uh, a men's pro team is seen as a prestigious piece. So there, there are cultural aspects that have to change within sports departments. I'm not sure they necessarily will, given the current state of newspapers. So my hopes are kind of pinned on the podcasts, you know, like Burn It All Down and the, the you know, the enterprises like Equalizer Soccer, which are kind of doing it from the bottom up, so to speak. So Shira, I think um, before we sign off, we definitely have to ask you what teams you're following in March Madness, which which women's basketball teams are the ones to look out for in this tournament? Oh, come on. UConn, <laughs> women, go Huskies, right? <laughs> well, I, I grew up on that like you, so. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, it'll always be the Huskies. I mean, I, you know, like I said, grew up 20 minutes away from stores, so I, I can't you know, root for any other um, team that they're going to have a a tough road to the final four. And I think that's great because, you know, we all know for so long they were dominating uh, women's college basketball. Um, Not that that's a bad thing. You know, I think dynasties are good, but I also think parody is good too. And the suspense that comes, I mean, again, talking about narrative, having that suspense in there, you know, so who are their challengers? Who's going to, who could take them out? Oh gosh! Um, I think Notre Dame is looking good. Baylor was looking good. Yeah, uh, see, I'm, I'm a Big Twelve guy because I, okay. I live in Kansas City. So I, was, okay, I, was, wait, I have I was, heard about the Baylor's Baylor women's team being very good. Okay, 
Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I didn't, um, I was gonna say Baylor, Notre Dame is looking good. Um, who else was looking good that I've seen play? Uh, Louisville is looking good. Mm. So, um, those are, those I think, you know, if I were to pick a final four, obviously the brackets haven't come out, but, um, like, you know, for those, uh, people who are filling out brackets at home, (laughs) um, my very, very premature final four, I would say Baylor, UConn, Notre Dame, Louisville. How does that sound to you? Sounds excellent. Okay. Thank you. Louisville's so- a little bit of my dark horse. All right. Well, I'll put that in for extra points in my bracket. Um, oh, you're going to be in my women's bracket. Awesome. <laughs> if it even lines up. Or you can go with how, what, how my nephews fill out brackets, which is simply by mascot. Like, they're, they're young. <laughs> it's like mascot appeal. So, yeah. Animal cuteness for the win. Yes. Or um, animal ferocity in their case, you know. Tigers are better than this. They don't get the whole leprechaun thing. It's very confusing to them. So, you know. Wait, un- wait until they find out about the fight in Quakers. Um, Shira, thank you so much for being on the show. A real privilege to listen to all of this expertise on a topic that is so dear to me. And um, we look forward to reading more of your work. Thank you. And thank you for having me. This is fun. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. Credit for the music bed and our Great Courses Plus promo goes to Damian Josiah Johansson and Anthony Bell. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the News tab. If you enjoy the show, you can do two easy things to keep us in business. Sign up for the Great Courses Plus free trial. If enough of you do, that will make them want to sponsor our show in the future. And give us a rating on iTunes. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod and on Twitter at FNFTalk and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy reading and rock chalk Jayhawk.